When Molly was praying, Lord, make us more like our leader, I thought, oh, no, you do not want to pray that prayer. Let me tell you, I'll be the first one to say, help us, Jesus. And then she mentioned, Jesus is our leader. That's good stuff. I want to begin this sermon by talking about next weekend's sermon. How about that? I don't do that often. In fact, I rarely do it. But I want to invite you. I want to ask you to make every effort to be here next week and maybe even invite a friend. Uh, At the prompting of my my wife and I believe the Holy Spirit, I'm going to do a sermon uh, next Sunday called God and Government and How We Get It Wrong. And she just noticed a couple of other pastors around the country addressing some things, the political climate, the level of anxiety in our world today. And just some stuff that we are getting wrong. And she challenged me to, to do this. So next Sunday, uh, I want you to be here for, the, for this. I think it's going to be um, something needed, very needed. And so pray for me as I continue to write. I think I actually wrote that sermon before this one. But, uh, but I'm really excited about that. So come next week, God and government and how we get it wrong. We're going to talk about some politics and religion up in here. and going to rattle some cages and ruffle some feathers and probably be a smaller church after next, uh, <laughs> next Sunday as well. So we'll have plenty of seats down front. Next Sunday at 11 o'clock and 930 uh, in the gym. Hey, as we start, I want to ask you, uh, what is sin? What is your definition of sin? It's easy to gravitate toward specific sins, to categories of sins, like sins of the flesh, the juicy sins, that if you commit them, uh, people talk about you, right? Those are the sins of the flesh. There's the sins uh, of the spirit, the things that are more hidden that aren't as juicy. Uh, one pastor calls them respectable sins or small sins or ex- excusable, acceptable type of sins. But sin has been defined as active rebellion or passive indifference. Sometimes I'm not out doing a bunch of bad stuff, but my heart isn't right toward the Lord. Active rebellion and passive indifference. That's helped me to think about my life, Jesus and his great teachings summons me to think more about my own sin than yours. I invite you on that journey with me. Some of you need to be relieved of that. Just let the Holy Spirit do his job of convicting the sin, the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The best definition of sin ever, I stumbled on a few years ago, reading a book called The Problem of Evil. Uh, The scholar, the theologian is named Alvin Plantica, and here's what he describes as sin. It's the culpable disturbance of shalom. Now, I know in a crowd this size, um, in a, in, with a lot of people, you probably, that was probably your definition of sin, right? You were probably thinking a culpable disturbance of shalom, if, if, I, if the preacher presses you on a definition of sin, right? Let's just for a moment address each in a brief way. Let's go backwards. Shalom is the Hebrew word. Now, we've been studying David, right? So we've been in the Old Testament. We've been looking at First and Second Samuel and some passages there, and of course, the Psalms. And we've been in the Hebrew or learning from that. And the shalom is a Hebrew word for what? You know, it's a Hebrew word for peace. It's a Hebrew word for health, wholeness, well-being, and blessing. And this idea is that God intends harmony for the world. He wants you to have peace. He wants you to have peace with God, peace with your neighbor, peace in this political era. That'll be next Sunday. And he wants you to have peace with yourself. Can you think of anything more elusive than peace of mind? In our day? Let me just let that hang over you for a second. Shalom, peace, harmony in the world, peace with God, peace with your neighbor, peace with yourself, going to sleep, having peace of mind, harmony, shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, disturbance, 
Last night I walked to get something. I was in the office studying. I walked over to McDade's and I walked back and I noticed there was a disturbance in the parking lot. Not the church parking lot, but the dueling parking lot. And there was a police officer and there was a melee. And I thought, good gracious. But my first thought is, did they go to Fondren Church? And secondly, I thought, just look the other way and go back to studying for the sermon, right? There was a disturbance, and disturbances happen. If they get loud, the police are called, or we notice, right? But a disturbance is, it's a disruption. And hear me, a disturbance is your heart cry. A disturbance is that visceral, emotional, very real thing that says this world is not as it should be. Things are wrong. It's environmental degradation. It's domestic violence, it's drunk driving, it's parents neglecting kids, it's teenagers rebelling from their parents, it's Wall Street corruption, and it's in this room, it's in every one of us, and it's when we put up walls and we let bitterness get the best of us and come between us. That's a disturbance in shalom and the peace, the health, the wholeness, the well-being and the blessing that God intends for you and I. Third word to look at briefly is culpable. That's when you take responsibility. You accept the blame. You want to blame shift. You want to sidestep. You want to point the finger. But to be culpable is to say, I have a part in the disturbance of shalom. I am culpable. I am responsible. And this is my part. And I will accept it. I will not run away from it. We need leaders in the church and leaders in our world that will be responsible owners. And when you take responsibility and accept ownership, you will feel guilty. I talked to a therapist this week. She said, there's a reason people feel guilty, Robert. You know why? We feel guilty because we are guilty. In what way are you culpable of the disturbance of shalom in our world today? I want you to turn. If I said this yet, turn to Psalm 32. I'll give you a moment to get there. And as you're turning, we are going to, I don't want to leave Daniel out to dry, but Daniel shared last week that we had finished up Flawed Hero, and actually today I want to tie a bow because we finished on the flaw last week. We looked at the 1 Samuel 11 where David fell into a sin to adultery, committed adultery, they conceived a child, he killed a man, and he covered it up. And we talked about this idea last week or this story, and today I want to put a bow on it as we look at Psalm 32. You have two options you and I do with our sin how do you deal how do you deal with your sin in what ways are you culpable for the disturbance of shalom there's two big ways we're competitive people I put them I want to put them on the screen in the versus category there's two ways that we deal with our sin the first is sin management but that competes with this very biblical idea this very freeing idea it's not an archaic religious word I just don't know that there's a more important word to contribute to your happiness. Repentance. Here are your options with your sin. Sin management versus repentance. Sin management starts with that sin in your heart. And it's aligned so closely with this self-defensive mechanism. How many of you are defensive? How many of you, you're around the house, right, and something comes up? Who took the, did you eat the, who didn't put, well, who didn't put the gas on? And your first line is what? Self defense, right? Can I just say, God hates that, all right? He hates that, and I have it in me. My wife has it in her, in a, in a big way, in a really, really big way. Sin management. 
Sin management says, God, I'm not going to do this your way. I don't buy that religious stuff. I'm going to manage this on my own. We saw it, didn't we, in David? Acceptable, respectable, small things, excusable things led to something. It led to lust. Lust led to the next thing that led to the next thing. And before you knew it, he was a full-fledged sin manager. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you are good at this? Do not raise your hand, but how many of you are, this is where you are today. And you want relief. It's your heart cry. God, I got to get out of this prison. I'm managing it and it's not working out. Let me tell you, let me give you four doozies of why sin management is so flawed. The first is this. It's that deceptions become more complicated. If you tell a lie, what do you have to do with that lie? Tell another lie. If you're not careful, you've got to tell another lie. And before you know it, you've piled up lies. And the lies are piled up so high, you've got to remember what you told people. And then you start getting my age and forgetting things you told people, right? Deception, sin management, by the way, is built on deception. And deception, over time, it becomes more complicated. One lie on top of the other. The second doozy when it comes to sin management is people become more suspicious. Lame excuses, alternative alibis, the cover-up. Noticeable, this is not a television commercial, but noticeable behavior and changes in mood and performance and behavior. Before you know it, the sin manager has suspicious people who smell a rat. Wives hire private investigators. Bosses get auditors. Businesses install surveillance cameras. And the sin manager... Gets a reminder. People become suspicion, suspicious. On top of that, mistakes become more likely. What happens when you cheat? Let me ask it this way. What happens when you cheat and you get away with it? It can stay with you. It can stay with you, can't you? Can it? But let's admit, in our darkness, there's some success there. If you cheat and you get away with it, you think, Phew, I'm good. I am a good manager of my sin. Now, let me say this, just to step back and get some perspective. Management is good. Jesus told really brilliant stories and parables about sound, good managers. And we have experts and consultants who tell us how to manage our business, our investments, our income, our image, our reputation, our stress, our anxiety, our weight, our health, our clutter. My wife has a lot of magazines, right, that talk about how to manage your clutter. Management is a very good thing, but some things don't need to be managed. Pretend for a second that you own a pest control company. And you get called to the home of someone and they say, hey, pest control company owner, let's do a thorough inspection on my house. I think I have a problem. And you do a once over. And after the once over, you tell them, hey, you have a, I hate these two words, you have a roach infestation. Ugh. And let's say that the owner looks back at you and you give them the, you give them the standard, my treatment includes the wipe them out plan. It's, the, it's $132 to wipe them out. Money back guarantee. But the homeowner strangely, very curiously says to you, oh, no, 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 we don't want to kill them. 
We just want to keep them under wraps. We want to manage them. We want them out of our food and away from our bedroom. Now, you would think crazy, right? No one would do that. If you hear the words roach infestation, pay whatever it takes, right, to solve that problem. But that's what we do with sin. We say, I'm going to keep it under wraps. I'm just going to manage it. But it needs exterminating and eliminating. Mistakes become more likely when you cheat and you get away with it. It says success. The first time you cheat, let's just talk about the human condition. The first time you cheat, you're like the boy who just took the training wheels off the bike. It's careful and thorough how you move. But when you cheat and get away with it, cheat and get away with it, cheat and get away with it, you're getting cocky and confident, right? And you're like the kid who has the training wheels off. He's riding with one hand. He's eating a sandwich with the other. And he's waving at his friends, right? Mistakes. Mistakes become more likely. And fourthly, listen to this. This is what we need today. God's judgment becomes more inevitable. In order for there to be good news, what do you need? Say it. In order for something to be good news, it's got to invade what type of space? It's got to invade the bad news space. And so far be it from us to be the church that just lets everybody off the hook. I want to preach a God who sees all and who cares. Do you know that God wants to right all wrongs? Do you know that God is deeply grieved by the culpable disturbance of shalom in the world? And do you know that God, your God, my God, the God is not an endlessly tolerant God? Now I bet most of you are like, amen, brother, preach it. But some of you are dismissing this. Larry Crabb, a Christian psychologist and author, says that we grow up in two different kinds of households. I wonder about you. He calls some green light households, and then he calls others red light households. And in the green light households, it's a permissive family. It's when the parents look the other way. It's when they never enact judgment. They never let a child suffer consequences. They're always rescuing them and making everything easy, pampering them with positive, pleasant things. The green light household. Did you grow up in that type of home? And some of us grew up in a red light house where it was stern, where there was strong and swift consequences to anything that you did wrong. In fact, someone was smelling just to see if you were thinking something wrong, right? They, they, they spanked one of your siblings and you were close by and they spanked you too, right, for what you were about to do wrong. Or you laughed at them getting the spanking, right? And that's a red light household. Now, which did you grow up in? Turn to the person next to you. Tell which green light or red light. Is it easy to identify? Now, here's the thing. If you grew up in a green light household, I want to... Okay, I'm preaching, guys. Come on. Seriously. It's two lights. It's a simple illustration. Some of you are like, well, I was born in Indianola in the Delta in 1972 with a banjo on my knee. and It was a hard scrabble life in the... Anyway, I didn't mean for you to share your life story, but what type of household did you, do y'all need me or can I just go, no. um, I'm like the teacher that had their feelings hurt, but what type of household, green light or red light? If it's green light, it's easy for you to dismiss this idea of God's judgment, but look, I'm not God. I study his word and try to speak on his behalf and try to do so with courage and conviction and humility. But I want to tell you, God cares. God is just. God is holy. 
And he tells people like you and me all through the ages that you reap what you sow. Didn't I quote that last week from Galatians 6? You reap what you sow. There are consequences. And we can't just say, God's going to keep looking past this. To Solomon, he raised up enemies who opposed him. To David, we've learned in these weeks that he raised up a man named Nathan, a prophet and friend and a nation's pastor to confront him. And then he let, maybe this is the greatest lesson of David's life, and I'm not sure if I said it in front of you clearly enough, but David, David sinned and God forgave him, but he allowed him to suffer some consequences of that sin. There's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Go figure this. But they cheated the church out of money at a very critical stage, the new stage of the church. And God, God killed them. He struck them dead right then and right there. I don't know God's timetable with you and with me, but I know that he doesn't want us to manage our sin. I know he doesn't want us to manage our sin. I know he doesn't want you and I to keep things under wraps to try to manage things when it needs to be exterminated and eliminated and killed. And so we come today to Psalm 32. I want us to look at the first six verses. And we're over halfway through with this sermon, so relax. The mascal of David, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I always want you to learn something when you come to church. Selah is a Hebrew word. It means stop. It's when their song's going on and they go, stop, hammer time. Or it actually means stop, think about it. Stop, consider, stop. Let's go deeper with this. Stop, or say love rather, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah, stop. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Preachers, it's hard for us to read the Bible without some type of outline. I'll, I'll give you a simple one here. In the first two verses, we see David right after his sin with Bathsheba, we see present happiness. And then verses 3 and 4, we see him going back. Because you can do this. You can experience happiness in the present. But you go back and you remember the pain of the past. But there's so much here. There's a clean slate, a new start, a fresh beginning. And it's so real. It's just so real. You're happy. So you can go back and you can do that. Now, let me be honest with you. When I'm not in a place of freedom... When I'm enslaved to public opinion, when I'm hearing the, the chorus of every single protest or every, every slight thing happening and I make uh, mountains out of molehills, as they say, I'm not in that place. And I don't want to dredge up stuff from the past because it's just painful. And that past stuff, that painful stuff in the past, it just saps the joy from your present. But here's David who experienced something so real. Now, let me stop for a second, Selah, and let me ask you. You ever been around somebody who, man, they're, they're not buying what they're selling? They're a saleswoman or a salesman. I, I was with one recently. I better be careful because they could be in the room. But I was with somebody recently, and they were selling me something. I thought, man, I, I thought he just wanted me to come have lunch. I just thought he loved me. And then, boom, he's got something to sell me. 
And he wasn't the best salesman. I thought, I, you know, he's, he's, this is a job for him. And I feel bad for the guy. I, need to, I probably should give him something, right? But like he's, he's not buying what he's selling. I know I'm sounding like mean preacher. I'm just trying to be real though. And here's what I'm saying. That's a bad place to be. And what the church needs is greater authenticity. And that doesn't come from reading the latest Christian books by the really popular rock star authors. That comes from knowing that you are loved and you are forgiven and you walk in that. But here's what's so interesting of this outline, this present happiness. And those are two verses, verses one and two. And in those two verses, David uses four different descriptions of wrongdoing. In the English, he says it's, it's uh, transgression, it's sin, it's iniquity, it's deceit. You get that? Transgression, sin, iniquity, and deceit. And all those words have a particular detailed meaning in the Hebrew Transgression means it's something that you've done as a volition. Sin means you've missed the mark. Iniquity means it's crooked or perverse. And deceitful means there's something treacherous about it. Solomon would say in Proverbs 13 that the treacherous way is the hard way. When you try to manage your sin, instead of repenting of your sin, you're walking the hard, hard road of sin management. But here's what's so Great. The beauty of this is in the irony of this. Transgression, sin, iniquity, and deceit. But it's, that's the happy part. But he says, my transgression, blessed is the man. That, this person is happy. I'm telling you because I'm, I'm, I'm buying what I'm selling. And here's what I'm selling you. The happy person realizes his transgression is forgiven. His sin is covered. Not the one who covers it up, but whose sin is covered. Transgression forgiven. Sin covered up. The Lord does not impute that iniquity. He doesn't count the iniquity against him. And the happy person is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. Walk into happiness. And the past part, the past pain, I love the poetry of this shepherd, musician, and warrior, and king. And he says what? My body wasted away. And just can I say to you, if you're my age, that the wasted away is not the kind that Jimmy Buffett talks about, right? In Margaritaville. Not the, not the coconuts and the, the white sugary sand and the, the swaying palm trees and, the, you know, getting away from it all. Not that kind of wasted away, but the bad kind of wasted away. My body wasted away. I groaned all day. Your hand was heavy upon me day and night, and I wilted under the summer fever, the heat of it all. We all live in Mississippi, right? Just think what's coming, right? Just think of the summer heat. And David is saying, man, I was outside with no air condition, and that's how it was. That's how my sin was on me. The past pain. But then the confession. If you have a study Bible or read a Bible that you've read that's open in front of you, I would circle verse 5 because that's what you need to leave with. Like that's the thing that changes lives. I acknowledged my sin. There's power in admitting. There is power in admitting. You see when you're around the house and someone asks you if you ate the last donut or you left just a little bit of milk. You know when you go to the refrigerator and you pick up the milk, it's, it hits the top of the because it's just a little bit and you did that, but you don't want to own it. You're not culpable for the, the disturbance of shalom in your home and you get defensive. You know that part that people hate about you and really you hate about yourself? That part doesn't naturally admit. So I'm just trying to say humbly and gently, that's a bigger part of you than you won't admit. Now I picked on my wife, I got it. I spot it, I got it. And in those moments when you're arguing, when shalom has been disturbed, 
you know that you're not right, but you keep arguing. Isn't that amazing? I'm just going to, I know that I'm wrong, but I'm just going to keep on, right? Sin management is so important. But the power is when you get to a place to say, I acknowledged my sin. It is ever before me. Psalm 32, Psalm 51. Psalm 32, Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a companion of Psalm 32. Both were songs written after David's great fall into adultery, after the killing and the cover-up. In Psalm 51, it says, you desire truth in the innermost parts. It says that the Lord crushed my bones and brought me joy. Now, we got enough doctors in the room to know that when you break a bone, that's never a good thing, right? But if you're young and you break a bone, that's a better thing. My daughter is 15 now, and when she, about eight years ago when she was seven, she fell off monkey bars at a friend's house. It happened on mama's watch, not mine. And I get a text from her mama and it said I was about to preach a sermon on a Wednesday night at another church and the text came and it said Haley fell off the monkey bars I think she's okay no big deal we're gonna run to the hospital you preach and I thought cool and then I preached and later I got to the hospital it's like I was hearing horror stories of how the bone was dangling and it was like that Joe Theismann leg injury you know people like medical people were turning the other way and you know it was just a horrific scene and they put her down for surgery the the next day And as a little girl, her bone, it grew back stronger. And that's the idea and that's the language of Psalm 51, a companion of confession to Psalm 32. Is, Lord, you crushed my bones, but in the crushing and in the breaking, I grew back and now I'm stronger. So church, what would it look like for you? What would it look like for you today to move away from sin management? Do you want some relief? Because deception gets more complicated. People become more suspicious. More suspicious. Mistakes become more likely. God's judgment becomes more inevitable. Do you want relief? Are you tired of sin management? You can be stronger. And you can have greater joy. The story is told of Frederick the Great, the king of Prussia. He was touring a Berlin prison. And as the story goes, there were inmates there who were shackled. And they were crying out. They were pleading their innocence and crying out for relief. And he was walking. And each man, every man was shouting out, claiming that they were virtuous, that they were innocent, that they had committed no actual crime. But one man wasn't crying out. And he said to that man, the king, Frederick the Great, said to him, What have you done? The man answers back. I robbed a man, your majesty. Are you guilty? He says, yes, your majesty. The story goes that Frederick the Great, the king of Prussia in this Berlin prison, looked at one of the guardians and he said, let this scoundrel go. He's going to be in here corrupting all these good, innocent, and virtuous men. (laughs) And the irony of that is, the irony there, It's those who confess that are really set free. It is those who confess who are really set free. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 4 that love covers a multitude of sins. I hope you have that at home. I hope you'll give that to me. I hope your love for me, if you know me, know my flaws, I hope your love for me will will cover some of my sins because I need it. 
And like you, I sin. And like you, I have self-defense. And like you, I try to manage my sin. And like you, I've gotten into some pickles over the years. And like you, I thought I've gotten away with something. And I'm so glad. Just nod, shake your head, say something. If you're glad that love covers a multitude of sins, are you glad? But that's 1 Peter 4. But if you back up to 1 Peter 2 and verse 16, it says, Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for sin. You can't be free. You can't have a covering for what you cover up. The past pain. It's nothing compared to this present joy. Because I've been forgiven. I want to close with reading from one of my favorite writers. A man named the, by the name of Mark Buchanan. He talks about, I want, to, I want to say this respectfully. He talks about confession as it's interpreted and practiced in the Roman Catholic Church. In the Protestant Church. And on the airways of television and radio. He says this word confession, it needs some definition. It needs to be distinguished from other pictures. Historically, the practice of confession has suffered abuse and needs rehabilitating. On one side, the Roman Catholic Church instituted confession as a sacrament that, was, that the faithful were expected to resort to regularly. This began as a good thing, but in many ways deteriorated into mere mechanism and manipulation. On the other hand, Protestants become so scornful became so scornful of the Roman Catholic practice of confession that we dropped it altogether and ended up creating churches of smiling, laughy, savvy people who were dying on the inside and too afraid to let anyone know. First church of the whitewashed tombs. This too bypasses the real issue of spiritual growth. Rather than bear fruit, we've tended to paint it on and hope nobody notices that we have no real roots or sap to grow fruit anyhow. To add to our confusion, the culture at large suffers from a glut of confession. Hear this if you wouldn't. Do your best for understanding. Television and radio talk show hosts have become international celebrities and wealthy to boot. Getting complete strangers to disclose to other complete strangers, millions of them, the most randy, sordid, intimate details of their private thoughts and lives. This kind of confession only increases the burden we carry. The filth inside. Rather than relieving the burden and washing the filth, it is being naked, not without shame, but shamelessly. So what is confession? In simple terms, confession is presenting our real self to God. All around us, religious and irreligious, formal traditions and informal traditions, we're getting it wrong time after time. Years ago, President Bush, the first one, the 41st president, was visiting Japan. And they had a big steak dinner in Japan. And he got sick, really sick, all of a sudden. And sorry to do this to you, but he leaned over. Anybody remember this? He leaned over and he just vomit, vomited in the lap of the Japanese prime minister at dinner. Anybody remember this? And it's on video. It was pre-YouTube, but you, you can find it, I'm sure. But just, oh, who wants that, right? A luminary, a dignitary, the leader of the free world. And then something so embarrassing, so humiliating happens to you. Who wants that? Here's my point. My point is, is that's what you and I, we think that about confession. We think if I vomit, it's just going to be so humiliating, so embarrassing that I won't recover. And the irony is, it's when you manage things and your image and your reputation 
that you're not set free. Now let me get vulnerable. Several years ago, I opened up my life to a couple of men and just told them everything. Trusted, godly men. Men who loved me and who were proven, who had proven to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And I felt like in some areas I had not guarded my heart. I was faithful to my wife. I was generous with my tithes and offerings. I was obeying the laws of the land. There weren't any juicy sins of the flesh. But I had a whole lot rolling around up here and in here. And I didn't know if I was going to go crazy. I was carrying the weight of worry and I was afraid to admit it to anybody. I was a bundle of insecurities and I needed help. And so I just told these two trusted friends everything. Things I didn't want to tell them. Things that they had a good chance, maybe they're going to think less of me. I wouldn't be invited to be the MC at the Campus Crusade conferences or to ever be the keynote speaker. But in hindsight, I see how foolish my pride was. And that was a healing bomb. And what I thought was such an aberration, so risky and vulnerable, really should be in so many ways the norm. In fact, I'm due for a checkup. I want to be careful saying this, but some of you emailed me this week, after last week. Most of you did not. And you started with some sort of apology. In every email I read, I just thought, it doesn't have to be this difficult. So many of us are locked in the vice grip of sexual sin. Man, we got to bring that stuff out and into the light. These aren't my words. You take them or leave them. Love them or loathe them. But James 5, 16 says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be 